Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Stephen Bates, who together with Jonathan Surgisson founded Surgisson Bates Architects in 1996. The practice is known for its keen awareness of history, often looking back centuries in search of rich and complex buildings from which to learn. Although their projects are by no means imitations of the past, they do have a sense of solidness to them at odds with the ephemeral nature of contemporary digital culture. In place of a futuristic speculation, often associated with well-known architects, though, they seem instead to look to the present, finding pleasure in the vagaries of everyday life. I met with Stephen in November at Surgis and Bates's London office in Clerkenwell, where we talked about, among other things, the influence that writing has had on the formation of the practice, Bates's reflections on teaching architecture in the UK, North America, and Europe, and the office's aversion to the open plans and blurred boundaries of modern architecture, embracing instead a sense of ambiguity and complexity in their work. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I do, yeah. I mean, there's themes, themes and questions I've kind of picked out. Um, I guess what I'm interested in starting with is the formation of the practice, mm-hmm. um, especially around the years 94, 95, I think, when you were meeting with other mm-hmm. architects, uh, including, uh, who is it, Tony Fretton, Adam Caruso, mm-hmm. and then artists uh, as well, Mark Pimlet. Brad LaCour. Yes, Brad LaCour, uh, theorists. He's a Canadian also. Really? <laughs> And then um, theorists like Irenaeus Galbert, mm. um, and then of course Jonathan Surgisson and Jonathan Wolf. Mm. Uh, you met for a year, a year and a half, That's right. on a weekly basis and shared yeah, papers. Yeah, it was Sunday Sunday morning for really up to a year and a half, and it was in the end a kind of group of friends who didn't have much work. Most of us at the beginning of practice, or weren't even yet starting our practice. Um, who realised that coming together and talking to each other helped. And I think because most of us had an interest in teaching, there was innately an instinct for trying to develop an intellectual position to practice. You know, it wasn't just about getting a job and paying the bills, but it was seeking meaning in work. And... Looking back, of course, it was an incredible privilege. And, and certainly Jonathan Surgisson and I both felt that it was formative for us as architects and for our practice. So who instigated these meetings? I don't really remember. I mean, the venue was Jonathan's flat in Marchmont Street in Bloomsbury. 
And it might have been something like Tony and Jonathan chatting over dinner or something one night. I, 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 really, I really don't recall. But because it was Jonathan's place, I'm pretty sure that he was part of um, proposing it. Mm -hmm. But what was surprising was how consistent it turned out to be, you know, that people kept coming back. You know, because it was not intended to be like now for the next year and a half we're going to meet, but it was, oh, what are you doing on Sunday? Why don't you have a cup, come and have a cup of coffee and we're going to have a chat, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think with the kind of uh, rigour of many of the characters, say like Mark Pimlot and Tony, it was immediately a critical event and an inquiring one. And quite quickly, the idea of writing came into play so that early on it was decided that we would come to the meeting with with paper with texts that we could read out um, and get a re critical reaction to it so it ended up being a for some people and for certainly for Jonathan and I a really great early discipline of trying to put some thoughts down on paper and I remember we had mentioned images and Peter, Sinjin and Adam were very keen on trying to work out what that was. And we were charged, you know, with, right, go and come back, you know, in next week and tell us about the images. Mm. And it sort of started a little bit like that. But bit by bit, one's own instinct for inquiry developed. And Jonathan and I both wrote a separate text, which was really about the city, architecture in the city. Um, mine was entitled Way to Work, mm -hmm. which was, you know, in a way, all, it, it was the beginning of an exploration of uh, the enjoyment of ambiguity, you could say, in words. So even the title, A Way to Work, was double, double meaning because it was actually describing the two options of a way to the tube station that I had from my home to go to work. Mm -hmm. But of course it was, underlying that was an idea about context and mediation and emotion and atmosphere that was really beginning to inform a way of making work mm -hmm. and how you make work. You've referred to this essay and other conversations as kind of being seminal to your practice in some mm -hmm. ways. And it's really interesting for me to have read it as well and kind of approaching it as an experimental piece of writing to a certain degree. Yeah. So this essay is collected in the first papers yes. uh, publication mm -hmm. that was it was published in two thousand one, right? And this this seemed to be a kind of the, the the fruition of the early papers meetings you were having with these other architects. Exactly, because there was an intention. It, the 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 meet the group did have a name eventually called paper, it was going to be papers on architecture. Mm -hmm. Jane Chipchase, the graphic a graphic designer, developed a wonderful, beautiful uh, identity for, for this. And it, the intention was to put all these papers together and make a book. Not everybody in the end wrote anything. That didn't really happen. There was no money. And in fact, we made an exhibition at the Architecture Foundation instead as a group, which was in those days in the basement of the Economist building. So mm -hmm. it was a really good venue. Um, and so, it, yeah, it, it um, because we didn't publish, but because that experience demonstrated to Jonathan and I that writing was a, a wonderful challenge, but a, a, 
clearly an interesting and important part of both practice and teaching, we started, we continued to write. Mm -hmm. And so by the time we made an exhibition of our work in the North London University, London Met, uh, we decided to make a catalogue for that exhibition mm. that was actually papers. And I mean, I look back at it and it was slightly, you know, confused, you could say, because it was a collection of writings, but it was also trying to show a bit of our work as well. Mm -hmm. Unlike papers two and three that were purer, more clear set of texts. Yeah. So papers one, was something slightly different, but it was bringing together p texts which were most of them published somewhere else, but yeah. we brought them together. So I want to go back to that first exhibition held at the basement of the Economist building, which to me seems like there's a kind of mythologizing going on, which I'm really excited about and drawn to, and the way that um, we kind of make our own histories yes, and establish sure. our own narratives of practice. And so the Smithsons have had a major influence on Sergis and Bates. And, um, you know, the subject of new brutalism is something that you've returned to again and again, most recently in a lecture in mm. Porto, is that right? Yes, and very, so, very well informed. But there's a, there's a kind of deep fascination with the movement that uh, early on, uh, as a budding architect, uh, you and, and uh, your partner Jonathan Sergison were trying to align yourselves with. Yeah. And um, in a sense, I guess that first, that paper's publication is a kind of test or a throat clearing or a initial posturing of like how do we fit in this lineage exactly exactly right because we realized that we were part of a continuity you know we we were looking backwards to understand what architecture could be for us the smithsons offered exciting things that strange they offered architecture which we didn't understand and in many cases we thought was quite ugly they offered poetic writing and a kind of um, magnification of everyday, the everyday experience, as well as a sensitivity to the past, historic past. And it was so exciting and new. No, nothing like this had happened to us in education. Um, the, particularly the way they wrote about architecture, which has, be, has been maybe the, the one biggest influence in the end. It was less about new brutalism because in a way that is another fiction, you know, mm -hmm. what that movement was in mm -hmm. itself. We were drawn more to, you know, the Smithsons themselves. I'm speaking for myself there. But I, I mean, in, in parallel to that, certainly Team 10, the kind of movement that involves wonderful architects, Kodirk, Aldo van Eyck, really all, all who were challenged. What, what was interesting for us is the way that Team 10 challenged the... Um, a kind of inflexible modern modernist set of principles. They were trying to find a humanism within the modern movement that we instinctively connected with. So there was that broad story of Team Ten, but it was a kind of the Smithsons were were more of a mentor-like influence. You know, mm. we we liked the idea that you could build really carefully, you could teach and you could write, you could say something about the culture of architecture in your practice. That was what we want, we wanted to be architects like that. Mm. Of course they were potentially right, quite difficult characters and there was a whole lot of other stuff going on which was more difficult for us to identify with, but the, what they were trying to do, we thought that's 
where we want to be. They, they help position us. Mm -hmm. And some, in some ways, some of their architecture started to do the same thing once we got used to it and got to know it a bit more. The Sugden House was, a, in a way, a reasonably quick and easy reference for us because of its um, dealing with a prototype, you know, the kind of traditional prototype. And um, Economist Building grew on us gradually as we started to become more and more fascinated with construction mm. and a kind of condensing of elements. So they, that, the, the work came later, but mm -hmm. the ideas and the, the mentality was the big influence. It seems like it's a kind of attitude that the Smithsons proffered, which yes. um, you and Jonathan were really drawn to. Yeah. And also this persona of the architect academic, mm. or not even academic, but architect thinker. I'd like to think of architect thinker because in this country, you know, academic is used in a, often, certainly in architecture, is negative. Retortive, yeah. Yes, it's sort of, oh, you're a bit intellectual, aren't you? Mm. you know? And it's, it, it's always troubled us because that seems ridiculous that you're not allowed to think, you know, <laughs> make work. Uh -huh. And mo mainland Europe has a different attitude to architects who think or teach, that, which is, well, to be a good architect, you should be a good teacher, you know. Whereas in this country, you don't see that. You know, the, the famous architects are usually not teachers. Mm. You know, they've never taught or did ages ago while they were, they were never intending to be a teacher yeah. for their career. Maybe this is a tangent we should quickly go off on then because the practice is now split between London and Zurich. Yeah. Jonathan Sergison runs a practice in Zurich and I mean has in the past lamented the state of architectural teaching in the UK. And I don't know what other drivers there were behind the division of the mm. practice mm. Um, or the forking of the practice. But it does, and I've heard this from other architects as well, seem like um, it's not ideal really the state of architectural culture in the UK right now, and that it really is a pleasure and indulgence to be able to build in continental Europe the way it isn't in, mm. in the UK. I mean, first of all, I'd like to just, in a way, be more precise and correct about the two offices. Mm. It isn't, I would, wouldn't use the word split. I no. think that the practice has evolved over more than 20 years. Like any relationship that, that the relationship between myself and Jonathan Sergison and then um, more slightly more recently with Mark Tuff, our third partner, is one of a kind of evolving, wonderful, complex thing. And it would, just like the Smithsons, you could see, you know, it, that relationship evolves and changes and transforms. Circumstances also come into play. What I would say is what's going on is a, a kind of broadening of the practice. Um, uh, and the setting up of the Zurich office that was really instigated by Jonathan, I think widened our potential and allowed us to work in parallel, um, you know, together and in parallel. Just in the way that, for example, we used to teach together and now we teach separately. I mean, in the end, if you look at what we, what I how I teach and how Jonathan teaches, there are so many overlaps mm. that are instinctive, you know, that we're completely, you know, together. But I think this later situation has given us also a kind of wider platform in which to, to work. And I would say a wider platform to the, for the members of the office mm -hmm. to, to work as well. Can so, we, sorry, oh, sorry yeah. go so ahead. That was, I was just, yeah. that was the appointed detail. Mm -hmm. But what I was, you were asking about, te uh, about the condition of work. I mean, in London, 
First of all, the Zurich office really concentrates on working in Switzerland, and it's a very specific culture, a competition culture, and a way of doing things. And it takes years to learn how to do that and win projects, and that's beginning to happen in Zurich. In London, we work in six or seven countries, you know, Belgium, Spain, Germany. Uh, it's not just the UK. Mm. And so there are only three UK citizens in this office of 26 people, which Says, says a lot. We have mm -hmm. nine languages in this office, and we, you know, we're so we like being in London because London is a fantastic place, and this office is a fantastic office to be in. We like leaving London and coming back, you know, mm -hmm. and we know that both Jonathan and I really understand our Anglo Saxon kind of character, particularly because we're working abroad a lot. You see yourself more clearly, mm -hmm. but I think working in this country can be a pleasure, but it also can be difficult. I think if one's being very general, yes, it's true that the land values and the process-driven construction industry in which there are more managers than people who actually do anything, make anything, is a, a worrying situation, but it is also it has an impact on how to build. But every country has its own problems, you know, and many of them are overlapping. In fact, mm -hmm. sometimes I wonder that just because we know so much about this country, we know all the problems and we're building in other countries and slightly more ignorant of those problems, but managing through almost naivety, building something, of, mm -hmm. of getting, achieving something. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say that um, we are, it's imperative to us to continue to build here. It's a shame that we don't teach here, but we both help out our colleagues who do teach in terms of critics and things. But... We give so much to teaching that it doesn't make sense to do it for nothing. You know, we have to also run a practice. And, and, and instinctively, we just find it unacceptable that teaching in this country is seen as a bit like a kind of favour mm. and not a real professional responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a big problem that someone has to, uh, we, we stand up to and say that isn't acceptable. So we both teach in mainland Europe, in Mendrisio in Munich, and we have good structures there with assistance, a bit of money, and it allows us to make things and produce things and teach very seriously the way that we'd like to teach. Mm -hmm. So you run a studio with Bruno Crooker in... That's right. Um, in, um, Teiu München. Right. And then, uh, I mean, what's interesting, just about something you said earlier, about the kind of cosmopolitan nature of the practice, which kind of extends into your, your teaching as well, because initially you and Jonathan taught at VAA. Is that yeah, right? Very early on. Jonathan first taught on his own, mm -hmm. and then we taught together for the first, with first years, and then we moved to Switzerland. And you were visiting ETH. lecturers at ETH? ETH, and then EPFL. Mm -hmm. uh, we did also teaching in Harvard together. That's right. And in Oslo together. Mm -hmm. And at that point we were then... Uh, the opportunity came for Jonathan to apply for the Mendrisio professorship, which he did and, and was uh, awarded that position. And a year later, I was invited by Bruno to uh, collaborate on a professorship, which was a really exciting and t has turned out to be a really fulfilling relationship. What's interesting about this like itinerant pattern of teaching in different countries and different cultures is that you have a unique view into um, into teaching or into cultures of teaching. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious like what your insights are about that, like having taught in North America, the UK, um, and all these various other countries in continental Europe, what, 
what are the differences or similarities? What are the students like? What are the programs like? What is the ideal? Arthur, I guess I have a clue. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in terms of the North American teaching situation, only through a, uh, an intense semester at Harvard, at GSD. And the students were incredibly motivated, um, multicultural, uh, but the environment was a very experimental one in such a way that Jonathan I didn't feel particularly attracted to, that mm. it was a theoretical experimentational architecture. And we were more interested in bringing a kind of sense of reality to play. You know, uh, uh, an ex for example, we brought housing to the studio. That felt already like a bit like, hmm, that's a bit strange. <laughs> and we proposed high-rise residential architecture because we felt that typology is a known one in that part of the world. And we were fascinated with how we could offer ideas of collectivity and in-between space that you see in abundance in the European city and whether you could transfer some of that in the end quality of uh, generosity into a high-rise building, in, in, into a North American situation where even the urban, the, the public realm is, it has, a, has a different mm. you know, status, you could say. So we were sort of provoking what, what we felt wasn't evident, wasn't there in, mm -hmm. the, in the school. We worked with one to 10 models of interiors, which you know, don't really happen, mm -hmm. uh, weren't happening at the time. It's very much kind of computer-based, very ethereal, and in, in, full of amazing energy, but not much of it felt like you could build it. Not a lot of realism. Exactly. I mean, this description is so familiar to me having studied in North America. I went to school in Toronto. Yeah. And there, I mean, I feel like Harvard kind of sets the agenda, yeah. uh, at least on the East Coast, and school is up and down yeah. in terms of what's being taught. And also, there's a lot of migration yes. from, fa from faculties as mm -hmm. well. And so I'm familiar with this, this kind of ethereal quality of student work. And it's interesting because this is a point in my education where I was starting to discover European architecture as well. Yeah. And work by uh, yourselves, um, as well as a slew of other uh, practices, including Cruz Ascension. And for me, and I think a lot of my uh, cohort, there is a kind of fascination with realness. Yes. And there is something kind of radical. Yeah, maybe it's just a reaction. About doing what you, a, yeah, mm. a real project all of a sudden. Yes. Um, but my sense is it's still the case that uh, academia, architectural academia in North America is still very much speculative yeah. and very much rooted in a kind of fascination with complexity yes. and information. I think that's exactly what we experienced because during our time we were invited to critics of other studios which we accepted you know, in a gentlemanly fashion. And I have to say it was quite disturbing because it felt very difficult to be able to comment because it was all about uh, complex intellectual work. We weren't really sure on what basis you could crit, critique this, this work mm -hmm. because the, what is it? Is it you know, it's just a, you know, an intellectual position against another intellectual position. And whereas if you're showing how you make an adjustment to a place, you, know, you have the place in which you can make, you can, you know, establish some readings towards. Mm. And I think the work in, I mean, that is, the, you know, what, one of the consistencies I would say in the teaching 
that we, we have in Europe and the places that we've taught, either because we've been invited to bring teaching or we've been invited as a critic, and certainly our own positions personally, is that belief in the European city, you know, that, that there is potential in the 21st century with this idea of the collective, the idea of reform rather than whole-scale replacement mm -hmm. that you can build upon. You know, cities take hundreds of years and thousands of years to evolve, and this is just, it's just carrying on. You know, mm -hmm. We're working with a level of sensitivity to change. You know, mediate means prepare for change. It's not only responding to what's there, but it's preparing for another phase. You know? mm -hmm. And I think that's at the heart of what we do. talk a bit about the practice's relationship to technology yeah because uh, I think this is kind of in tangent to this resistance um, that uh, we're talking about towards um, complexity um, yeah and so I mean it's a model making office mm. and I know that in the studios you teach oftentimes you'll start you'll encourage students to start with the model yes. and then draw the plans yeah and that it's a kind of visceral yeah. explorative process yeah um, and I guess, I guess tangent to that, that res uh, not resistance to technology, but skepticism of unnecessary technology is, I don't know how to put this, but a fascination with a certain type of character or way of being, which I think is embodied in this guy, Monsieur Hulot. <laughs> Monsieur Hulot. I've seen, yes, him, yes. I've seen him come up in a few of your yeah, talks. I, I, yeah. And just, I didn't even know who this person was. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. I'm an architect and I don't, and I'm he, not a tatty uh, enthusiast. I haven't really watched a lot of his films, but There are for two wonderful books about him, which I really recommend you read as an art, as a film, his life as a film director. What are they called? Do you know? Okay, well, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll tell you later. But what, I mean, so for listeners who aren't familiar, Mr. Hulot is a character in a lot of Jack Titi films. Yeah. He's a kind of bumbling Luddite um, at odds with the uh, world around him. And at, at odds with the new world around yes. him. Yes. And so, like, why, why your fascination with this character? What does he mean to you? Um, well, he was a performance artist and a polemic. I think he had a, a strong agenda about the way the modern city and modern civilization was evolving at a time when it was changing so rapidly and fast. And he could see the wiping out of 
uh, history and culture. Uh, I mean, you know, Verzun architecture, etc., etc., and wanted to kind of raise that to people's awareness and to recognise what was still beautiful about the things that were seen to be old, out of fashion, whatever. So he often he placed himself against the kind of modern age, either through people or technology, and yes, sometimes was bumbling in any way consciously. Um, what I feel he does for me is to raise awareness of community, raise awareness of things being made and improvising, the improvisation of things, of the city. I showed you, I mean, you maybe saw in my lecture in Lisbon, I have an animation of um, mm -hmm. Mon Oncle, and he lives in this little old house. And it, just the sequence of him leave, arriving at the garden gate and eventually ending up at his room at the top of the house already is a sort of uh, architectural pleasure because the whole idea of promenade, of secret spaces in buildings, that buildings that don't explain themselves immediately in one moment, intrigue and mystery, mm -hmm. are all, for me, characters, that, characteristics that are so valid in making the best of architecture, mm. but are often nowadays seen as um, suspect or somehow, you know, not honest or something, whatever this terrible word honesty is. Mm. And so I show that show him and talk about him in that sort of provocation to remember that there are there are there are ways to make beautiful architecture. You know, I think of. Um, for example, Elizabethan architecture, you know, over a period of 50 years, extraordinary things were made in this country, you know, before classicism really took hold. And we were a provincial country that looked not very far out beyond our limits for influences, very particularly the, the Netherlands or the Low Countries in those days. But what you saw was a kind of pragmatism and improvisation. And that if you take, say, Hardwick Hall as an example, this is a building that is almost perfectly symmetrical in its facade, but the world inside is completely not representative of that. So the building, the face of the building says something about its context and about its owner and about ideas of being modern and, in this case, enjoying geometry. But the interiors are another world, which is about ritual and hierarchy. And this mismatch has always fascinated me. Mm. And I, I enjoy the idea that you don't always see everything immediately that you have to look again and again or be invited that bit further and further in and a world is uncovered mm. like the TARDIS you know <laughs> um, I find that in a way that seems to be anti-modernist mm. you know where transparency um, borderless threshold freeness uh, a blurring of inside and outside are, are absolutely paramount and I think all in their right place, those themes could be interesting, but to dismiss everything else for the sake of that seems, you know, ridiculous and simplistic. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, Hardware Call is, is a very personal precedent for you. It seems like it's come up repeatedly in different, no, in different forms um, of conversation uh, or writing. and. Um, I guess instead of talking about that precedent specifically, what I'm interested in is this kind of like honing mm. of an agenda or of, a, yeah. of an architectural identity. 
because there's been three papers, publications now. And uh, I think that precedent has come up in all three of them. Alongside um, an apartment of a friend of yours in Oporto. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's, it's deeply personal and often unfamiliar to the reader. Um, but it's almost like you're creating a universe for yourself. Yeah. And you're kind of letting us in a little bit. What I've noticed, though, is that the early writing, that first papers book, it was very like kind of raw yeah. and, like I said, kind of experimental or like weird. Um, I guess as you're becoming accustomed to what it means to write as an architect. And then also it kind of exhibits itself as a strange artifact because there's like three jackets or four jackets on it, right? How yes. Much time do we have? Okay, I'll wrap it up. Um, and then we have papers too, which is kind of embodying its, its design and the kind of type of paper you're using. And then papers three is a kind of academic, almost like bound thesis in a way. I had a really hard time finding these actually. A lot, most of them are out of print. Um, and it's only in the Reba library where you can sit and read them. And I'm wondering like who actually is the writing for in hmm. a way? And like what, what would it mean to publish these texts on a website, for example, for free? Mm. Or who is the audience, mm. actually? Because there's this culture of like uh, kind of rarefied, enigmatic texts and architecture that go for hundreds of pounds on mm. Amazon now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, interesting. When the original motivation was to, because we valued the texts and they were hard work and they meant a lot to us, we wanted to put them together in a way that we could control and in some ways archive them because otherwise they were you know in magazines one over here and a publication somewhere else so it was a little bit like a kind of archiving thing we like to make books you know that's another thing we like to do to make to make uh, some physical thing so that was a, an attraction and i mean the website and the kind of universal access for papers one and two is still was a new idea that wasn't mm -hmm. really on our wavelength of mm -hmm. course we're more aware of it now and by the time papers three came we felt that it really was in the end not an academic book but a, a book of writing and that it shouldn't try and be anything other than that and lessons we'd learnt in papers two we we just transferred to papers three but this time made a nicer cover because we had a bit we found a bit more money. But I, what, yeah, um, the question of who they are written for. Because each individual paper was written for a particular purpose. So each of them had their own purpose. Mm -hmm. Either they were a positional text that was written in our free time, you know, or they were a, a paper that was written for a teaching situation or a conference situation that then was adapted slightly to become a standalone paper. Mm -hmm. So they had their own purposes at the time, but put together they become a kind of anthology of a way of thinking. And that's why you'll see often overlaps or the reference of the same thing. I mean, you know, how many references does one have? I mean, it is, it is understandable that certain things keep coming back. Mm -hmm. And of course, sometimes I'm trying to avoid saying, talking about the same project again, yeah. or um, consciously trying to avoid it. But I think the other one is the English Terraced House, by the way. Mm -hmm. In Papers 3, it sort of appears all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't worry about that. We just said, well, that paper was written by Jonathan about this. And then I wrote something about something else, and it happened to be that we were working on the same reference. And it was just, that's fine. You know. mm -hmm. 
Um, putting them together was as much a personal indulgence than anything else. Not printing too many copies made it, for us, strangely, not too, of a, too much of a commercial um, stance. Uh-huh. And yet, of course, conversely, it's turned into a hugely commercial one. I mean, we, that's the <laughs> ironic thing, that we thought, oh, well, let's just publish a few, you know, no one will want to buy it, but mm. we're sort of doing it for ourselves. Mm. And now it's, oh, can I have a copy of Papers 3? How do I get that? You know, Papers 1 is out of print. Everyone I meet who knows about Papers wishes they had a copy of Papers 1. And I think that it's funny. It wasn't an intention, you know. Do I enjoy that position? Probably because it allows us to uh, celebrate the idea and the difficulty of writing and the importance that writing can be on practice. Architects, some architects could get so much from writing, and we do, and we continue to do. Um, what I think, think is a shame is this problem that maybe we have in this particular culture which is a distrust you know a, a somehow a distrust of of thinking too hard mm. <laughs> um, and I suppose that maybe that's our active resistance against that which is to say you know here are some texts they're not academic because we're not academics they don't have the discipline of an academic intentionally um, we respect and too highly real academics <laughs> to think that we can do what they do but they kind of try and work things out all the same. And they, in some cases, enjoy using words because ultimately that is what I enjoy most. Can I ask one more question? One more question. Speaking of words, I mean, there's this interest in etymology that you brought up yes. before. Yes. And, and speaking of academics, there's this one figure, Gottfried Semper, <laughs> who reoccurs again and again as well. And I guess as a way of concluding the conversation, um, I mean, what, for people listening who aren't familiar with Semper's theories, how would you, in a kind of nutshell, <laughs> this is so painful, I'm sorry, <laughs> how would you uh, kind of explain Semper's influence on, on uh, the practice or the way that Sergius and Bates builds now? We, I, would, I, I think I'm right in saying, and maybe I could say from a personal point of view, but that Semper's work became more evident to me, um, strangely, via Kohlhoff. Yes, you mentioned that. By reading uh, an essay he wrote about cladding, and in which he refers heavily to, to Semper. And slightly in parallel to that, reading the writings of Adolf Loos, so very different characters, you know. And that led to a kind of investigation because we were, at the time, consciously moving our work from an architecture of layering, like fine layers of using a rain screen, to an exploration of weight and depth and a sense of strong material presence in the work that we were making. And Semper just sort of naturally became a kind of focal point to get to grips with how to make walls. You know, Kohlhoff describes very clearly the problem that we, or the, the reality of the situation now, which is because of the thermal layers, that the opportunity to build in the old way is, of course, gone monolithically. But the, that, his point was that doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can't build with rich texture and reveal 
and with representational value. And his references to Semper started to trigger a great interest because Semper was always interested in trying to understand the source of things. So his, his interest in etymology was then, in, you, know, you could say, inherited by me personally because I was fascinated, I am fascinated with the origin of things. When I think about the social development of an interior of a home, you know, or the meaning of the word wall, you know, both of them, when you track back, you find all sorts of things. Textile with the wall, and uh, you know, ideas of what comfort could possibly mean, you know, when it comes to understanding an interior atmosphere. So I, I'm grateful for Semper for for that sort of nudge to look at the origin of things. But I'm also grateful for him to recognise, as he did at the late, in the late 19th century, that architecture, art and technology were still intertwined. That you could... Composition was still OK. You know, you could compose. And I have to say, you know, we were, through education and through sort of modernist teaching, composition was somehow not on the agenda. It was just the result of a whole load of functions that you put very carefully together gave you a composed facade. And we knew that wasn't true, but we didn't have the confidence. And we felt that, by the way, through education, young architects don't have the confidence to compose often because they aren't given that courage to realise that they're stacking something on top of each other and they have to do that in an artful way as well as use technology. Semper who didn't make particularly great buildings, wrote perfectly about how to, you know, what the attempt was. And I think that that is, it just, you know, finding him at the right time meant that it's impossible to extricate him from who we are as architects, and certainly I feel I am. And he's like one of those important focal points, like the Smithsons, like, like you know, um, Elizabethan architecture, like these, these little as someone described to me yesterday, tent poles in the ground mm. that you, in the end you realise create a kind of structure in which you're formed. And I suppose we make them a little bit public through the writing, but in the end everyone has to find their own tent poles. Mm. You know? Good luck to them. <laughs> Stephen, thanks so much for your time. Okay, no problem. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Matthew Halsall. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Stephen Bates, and thanks to you for listening. This is the last episode of Scaffold for 2018. I'll be back again with more interviews in the new year. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.